is Ashley Allen, and you are listening to Cuyamaca Conversations Podcast. Today, I will be sitting down with Grammy Award-winning mastering engineer and best-selling author Evren Gochner. His book, Major Label Mastering, Professional Mastering Process, gives personal insight on 25 years of mastering experience at Capitol Records, as well as tools and techniques used by Gochner himself at one of the world's most notable record labels. His book is available on all platforms now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Evren. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Ashley. All right, so let's just jump right into it. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your pathway to getting here? What got you interested in working in music in the first place? Well, you know, I've always been a lover of music. I'm a musician. So, you know, there was a piano when I grew up in the house and, you know, guitar. I had some older siblings. So it was around 10. I I wanted to get uh, into piano lessons, you know, so I I was taking piano. And then around 15, I I switched over to playing guitar. So working in music uh, started with, you know, my passion for music and being a musician. And then, you know, I did kind of just do a traditional, uh, you know, um, a liberal arts uh, bachelor's degree in English literature. Just, I think I wasn't sure really, uh, and, and wasn't sure about maybe majoring in music at that point. But once I graduated, I went to Musicians Institute over in uh, Hollywood here in LA, uh, did their guitar program and, um, you know, started playing in bands, rock bands, and then, you know, writing songs and singing and, and performing. And so, I was doing the creative side of things, you know, that was really a a big push and a big part of my passion for music. And then around that same time, when I finished MI, I, you know, had a a discussion with a friend of mine who was starting to work in recording studios. And, you know, it was a good way to just be working around music and musicians uh, and recordings and and earning a little bit of money as well. Uh, So uh, that's kind of what got me into to working in studios and I just sort of progressed there, you know, kind of slowly started uh, working my way up and a certain juncture I decided to get into um, mastering. I learned about mastering after I learned about being a recording engineer. So, you know, I, I started looking for those uh, opportunities actually in, in in a lot of my jobs I, I uh, you know would look at a couple of resources one was music connection I always had these uh, these jobs posted for studios in their miscellany section and then I also um, once I was looking for a mastering uh, position I was looking at the mix master directory I think mix still has like a publication that they actually press out too. But um, I just approaching these people with, you know, my, my resume and my credentials, that's sort of the, the nutshell overview of, of how I sort of got into working in studios and then ultimately, you know, being a mastering engineer, which is, you know, what I, really what my main function is now and has been for uh, a long time. Was there like a specific aha moment that made you realize like this is what I want to do? Well, that's interesting because, yeah, like it wasn't so much that I started out wanting to be a mastering engineer. Like I didn't really even know what a mastering mastering engineer was, you know, until I had already really been a recording engineer, really. You know, I a little bit of a cryptic and, and you know, they kind of refer to it as one of the black arts because there's a lot of mystery that surrounds mastering. I think because it is highly specialized. And it's a little less prevalent, maybe, uh, you know, than like a professional mastering studio is probably less prevalent than a professional recording studio. And nowadays, of course, people attempt to do all these things with plugins. They try, they do work on doing them themselves. So I guess there probably was an aha moment and it probably went something like this. Uh, I had gone to a couple mastering sessions with, like I told you, this producer I had been working with. And, you know, I was always still playing in my bands. And one of the things I loved about recording is it's really fun work. It's really engaging, but it's like really long hours. You know, it's pretty grueling. You know, it's like you can be 12, 14 hours and it can be continually for the period of a recording, like the basic recording, which is like the bass and drums and and harmony instruments. Vocals, uh, and, and usually there's three main areas of a recording session, like three main uh, phases. And one is the basics, the next is the overdubs, the next is the mix. So this was great work. I loved it, but it was ta- it would eat up a lot of time that I couldn't schedule like band practices or gigs or shows with my band that easily. And one of the things I learned about it was that it was really kind of a contained work day and a contained work week. 
So that appealed to me too. Like I began talking to some people that were doing it and they're like, yeah, you know, it's just, it's much quicker than the recording process and you can, you can contain your, your work day and your work week. So I thought if I got into mastering, I'd be able to do some, some more easily schedule all my creative work in the evenings or, or whatever, you know? So that was a kind of an aha moment, you know, is the intersection of, of practical uh, considerations and, you know, my skill set as a recording engineer. So, so yeah, I would have to say that was probably a couple years into my recording career. So it was essentially kind of just something that you shifted into rather than something that you specifically decided you wanted to do. You kind of just shifted from one to the other? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit both. I mean, I do think it's really important for, you know, people in whatever they pursue. At some point, you have to get really clear in your mind, like, about what you're pursuing. And you have to kind of break off, I'm going to say, you know, two and a half to five years time to actualize that. I know that's hard to hear in a way because it seems like such a long time, especially when you're, like, young and ambitious. Um, but it, it's like a really important component, I think, about doing things in music or even any other aspect of life. So, um, yeah, I did shift, but it was a, it was a, a decision to shift, you know. And, and when I first started working at, in mastering, which is here at Capitol Records, they had, you know, set job positions. So in, in the mastering department, the entry-level position is something called production engineer, which is really kind of making duplications at that time of CD masters. You know, they're not that common anymore because everyone uses files and streams their audio online. But it was a real consideration for me because I had gotten to the point where I was working in studios. I could book studios around town and I would go and I would have an assistant. And I was sort of, you know, I don't want to say like a hot shot or anything, but I would go in there and, you know, I was running like a whole recording session, you know, and it was kind of like it felt like you're in the uh, hot seat, so to speak. But my first job at Capitol was like more of like a, you know, I'm not interacting with the artists at that point and I'm just sort of doing a, a kind of a rote technical function. But I did know and understand that this was going to lead to mastering because that was my goal. And I knew that's what, you know, that's what this facility did. And I had the idea that I could transfer or shift, like you mentioned, my skills from recording into this other function. And looking back, I mean, it was a really good decision for me. I'll, I'll one little footnote on this. A lot of my friends who were doing recording, I mean, it... I have some friends that, you know, were just recording engineers, like maybe they didn't play in bands or play music per se. It was, it's grueling. And I saw people that had been in this industry for like, like maybe, you know, 10 or more years. And it seemed like it could be tricky. Like you could be doing great, making good money, busy, and then you could be totally dead in the water and slow for a number of weeks. And I, I paid attention to that. You know, I paid attention to that. Like what kind of lifestyle do I want? You know, how do I want my work week to be and and those all informed it. Yeah, and I think that's a really good thing to consider is what would be best for yourself in different areas in the music industry. And I agree that if you're wishy-washy about working in anywhere really, that you're not going to be as dedicated and hardworking in that subject. So especially with the music industry, I think you really need to be very dedicated and think this is what I want to do and I'm going to work for it as opposed to like, well, maybe I want to do this, but sometimes you're going to be doing really well and sometimes you won't. So that's something you have to be prepared for. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely the case. I think it's the case if you're an artist as well. I mean, there are ups and downs and um, it's good too to pay attention. You know, I've had friends as well that like were interested in, okay, I want to get into being a recording mix engineer. And then maybe a year or two in, like they just decided it wasn't going to be completely for them and and so the beauty about this era right now is like because of you know computers and pro tools and plugins and being able to do these things if you want to set them up in your own apartment or home you know it's feasible and you know if you have some dedication and talent and maybe a good ear a good musical sense you can progress so for those that are listening that might not know what exactly is master engineering Okay, so yeah, so mastering is the last phase of the recording process, and typically it's uh, you're putting the final polish. It's like the easiest analogy is like if you get your car washed, mastering is like the waxing and the detailing part. It's what you do uh, to make sure a song is uh, the right level volume-wise and the right uh, balance, frequency balance-wise. Uh, you can do some 
balances of instruments and mastering, but if there are real issues with instrument balances, you have to go back to the mix engineer. You have to call the mix engineer or email whatever, however you communicate with your mix engineer and say, hey, look, you know, you should really make the kick drum a little bit louder and the vocal a little bit quieter for this genre. And ideally, they trust your judgment. But yeah, mastering is the final step. It's the last stop. And we use similar tools as recording engineers, equalizers, compressors, and limiters primarily. And uh, But we use them in a way that's just like you're a colorist for film. You're making the blues bluer. You're making the reds redder. You are enhancing certain frequencies. You want to make sure the listening experience of that song or that album is really, uh, you know, the best it can be for, for the listener. And another thing that's important about mastering is like, say, if it is a collection like an album, you want cohesion between the songs. So if you have a 10-song album, if it's mastered well, not only would you not feel like, oh, it's dark or it's um, too bright, like the frequencies are balanced well but also song to song the levels are balanced well so you could turn on that album or stream it and you wouldn't be reaching for the volume because oh song three is really quiet and song four is a little too loud you know you know unless it's a song that you just want to crank up but you know so there's the cohesion and level so it's the last stop in the recording process and then what does a typical day's work look like for you a typical day's work it's a good question so there is a common you know set of things that take place so pretty much you know, it's about getting the source file. So we're assuming a typical day work means you would have a song, an EP, or an album to master. You know, a song you could probably get done fairly quickly, maybe in 45 minutes to an hour, but an album could take a full day. It's usually about a half hour to 45 minutes to master a song as long as you're not running into problems. So, you know, a typical 10 song record should, you know, be, you should be able to do that in about six to eight hours. And just, just as a you know, as an aside, if you're mixing really fast, you might be able to do it in three or four hours, but that's pretty fast. I, usually it's a single song per a, a day of mixing, more or less, sometimes two days of mixing for a song. So just to give you an idea, like I was saying before, how it's like a, a lot more time intensive to be doing like mixing pro, you know, project wise. So anyways, for me, a typical day is you, you would get your files for the particular project. If you needed to, you would communicate and talk to the artist or the producer or the engineer, whoever you're contact is it could be a record label too and you'd be like okay so i see this is you know just for the sake of argument this is um you know katie perry this is like a radio pop album and uh you know some rock uh tendencies uh influences and so you know i'm going to approach it uh to the specifications that are standard for level wise for that and frequency wise and so what you the first thing you do really is you load them up i work in a two computer system some people can work in a one computer system when they master but i load them up on a playback computer i uh take measurements of the songs other uh, levels um, I take a lot of, uh, this is actually the big part about mastering is you have to have a lot of listening, uh, experience and a lot of listening confidence genre wise and music wise. Again, this is why it's really important if you are a musician or if you listen to a lot of music, it's really, and if you know something about recording as well. And I make, I make mental notes about, okay, so this, uh, the first song I'd listen to it, I'd be like, okay, it sounds like maybe the vocal could use a little more clarity. I'm having some trouble with listening, hearing some of the consonants in the vocals. I'm going to think about brightening up the vocal, you know, the kick and uh, the bass drum and, and the uh, snare drum seem good. Just going to make sure that they don't uh, lose anything in the process. I'm going to see if I can get the choruses maybe a little wider so they blossom and uh, are enhanced. So I'll make a couple quick mental notes about that based on what I'm hearing. And then I'll just uh, start to do a, a few steps. You know, I, I have a set way that I approach it. The first thing I do is kind of leveling, getting the volume. And then I go to a little bit of dynamics control, which is either compression or limiting. Sometimes I want to make sure that cymbals aren't poking out too much or other instruments aren't, the snare isn't maybe overtaking the vocal. And then I'll do equalization and try to enhance that way. And I try to basically go for a really ideal listening experience and I recorded it into the second computer. So I do that in a series uh, if it's 10 songs, I'll do that 10 times. And then I'll edit together those 10 songs. You edit off the uh, once at the beginning and once at the end to make sure there's no extra audio or time on the file. And you generate whatever the client needs. So usually it's like a, a, a regular uh, 16441 wave file for streaming. A lot of times there's a Spotify file, which is a little bit quieter because Spotify has level specs. Uh, there'll be one uh, that's if they want to master for iTunes file, which uh, goes through a special process. Uh, so there's no clipped samples. In, in this day and age, you just email that back to the client. They listen and 
ideally approve it. If they approve it, then they're good to go. They're going to get it up online and get it to all the distribution sites. If they have some questions, or if they're like, hey, you know what, you know, song three still sounds a little like it could use a little more impact, or song four seems like it's a little dark. What do you think? And and I listen to what they have to say, and I make revisions if needed. But that's a typical workday for a mastering engineer. You're basically just going through the process of mastering and delivering those files to the client. And do you usually work alone, or do you have a bigger team that you would work with? That's a good question. Um, I do have a team at Capital because someone is really doing the administrative part of this. So I do have, you know, we got Ryan in our office um, who basically will answer the phone and, and he'll kind of quote the prices, get the billing information, do work orders and invoices. And he'll sort of maybe send or email me like, hey, I got this project or someone called requesting you. Here's the files and the details. Uh, so, yeah, so definitely working with an, with an administrative person is helpful. Um, you can can you know i know there's a lot of mastering houses where there'll be an assistant maybe or someone like i said my first job at capital was doing production engineering over the years that kind of went away because we basically the process became more streamlined and we do all our own production work like production work was technically like i said making copies or also doing something called quality control so if a cd master had been done or even in, in today if i had mastered a an album like i that example say a katy perry album or something the production engineer would then open that up and listen down to the whole thing and make sure there's no distortion or problems or ticks or clicks or any kind of issue so I do all that myself now because we've sort of streamlined the process here at Capital. There isn't enough of that kind of steady workflow that would require a specific production engineer. So I'm, you know, other than the, than Ryan in the office, it's pretty much the the mastering engineers are are a little more on their own, and that's actually a good point because it is a little more of like a party when you're recording and mixing. It can be like you know the, the artists are coming in and out more. I do have probably now 25 percent of the time the artists will come in to the mastering session, but it's pretty rare because of COVID now, especially. Uh, nobody does that, but some people really love coming. Obviously, it's exciting to come to the Capitol Tower, and they get excited, and they, you know, it's a good photo op, and so people like to do that. You know, it's one of the great things about working here. You know, I'm fortunate, like. Uh, to, to have a job at Capital is that everyone's happy to be here. Like, it's just exciting for people to come. They know the building. They know recordings that were released by the label. So it does always make for this kind of first day of school excitement. Yeah, that's good. And specifically with artists, you had mentioned that you don't typically work with them, but they do occasionally come in. Do you prefer when they stand by or would you like it when you're just working on your own and you send them the piece afterwards? I mean, I'm actually a pretty social person, so I, you know, I kind of like the interaction. It, it does take a little longer because there's a little more discussion or joking around or whatever it may be. But, but I'd say I do prefer it, you know, most of the time. And there's some days where you're just like, oh, let me just kind of get to it on my own. So I'd say I like it because, you know, overall, you know, I do like the interaction. But again, like I said, it's it's getting to be uh, well, especially with COVID, it's really hard. But normally, I want to say it's about you know seventy percent unattended, maybe 65 to 30, 35% attended. And then I know that you've worked with The Voice. How does mastering for a show like The Voice differ from mastering in the normal studio setting? Yeah, that's a good question. It's funny because they, they're just about to work. There's a new season starting, so I'm going to be working on that starting in uh, November. So yeah, The Voice is pretty interesting. Well, I think a couple things are, are, are different and important to point out. You know, the, the, it is a little bit of like a, like a pop-up factory or machine with The Voice. So one guy named Bill Appleberry, he mixes and records all those songs. So when the contestants are performing on the show to the live band, at some point that same week, usually before that, they've gone into, it's usually down on La Brea, Jim Ed Henson, the old A&M recording studio. They record uh, the song with the artist in the band. And so... The idea is that on now it's on the on the uh, last weeks. So I think it's the live rounds. But actually, when I first started working on the voice, they would do every week would be all the songs uh, would be available on iTunes. So it was really like a lot of work. So what they would do is they'd send over like twenty songs, you know, a week, and you know I would I would master them. They would go back. Like I said, this guy Bill Appleberry, he'll finish the mixes. He sends them to me. I master them. I send them back. They quality check and verify it. And if it's all good, then I send it to. Um, 
actually we have a like a it's called like an ingestion department. We still do have that. They are technically production engineers, but they're doing more like label big like kind of almost like a factory thing. Like they're just QCing, they listen and upload. Uh, at the same time to like iTunes and and all the distribution sites for Universal Music Group. So, but they're not they don't really do like if I had like a like an indie band or something that wasn't like a, a larger part of the label, they wouldn't be involved with that. So, it differs because it's very time sensitive and on the last few weeks, you know, I have to pull an all-nighter, which is I didn't used to mind it as much. It gets a little hard. It's pretty hard. You know, I'll come in at like 11 or 12 a.m. on Saturday night, and I'll be here till 8 or 9 in the morning, Sunday morning. But a lot of times I'm waiting for Bill Appleberry to finish a mix. Uh, if it's like the finale week, you know, you've got the judges. So it's like Glenn and Blake and John Legend and Kelly Clarkson have a duet with their with their artist. And they live in, I don't know, Idaho or something. And so they have to listen to the mastering. So you're waiting. You're waiting for them to say, okay, it's good. Or, or if they want some other kind of change, like a mix change. So so you're more on call. It has to be done. It has to be sent to that those ingestion people by about 9 a.m. Sunday morning, or it won't make the broadcast of the show, which is usually, I think, Mondays. Um, so there's, there's a lot of pressure, and there's about a team of eight people who are monitoring everything I'm doing, not really by calling as much or, or, or watching me on video, but they're like, okay, Everin has all 20 songs, uh, or, or if it's if it's the finale, it'll be like 10, 10 or 12. It'll be like, he's got all 12 songs. Okay, we're, we're waiting for him to start sending these. So every time I send them, I'm like informing all of them. I'm like, okay, I sent three, four of 12. I sent five of 12, um, waiting for the approval. So it's like this kind of like a, it's a pretty it's a pretty slick streamlined operation so there's all those issues and if there's a problem it is a huge problem so you got to make sure there's no problems because everyone is their job and reputations on the line to make sure these songs get up by Monday and with it being such a time sensitive project and essentially playing the waiting game waiting for everything to be done is your process for mastering on the show different or the same as mastering in the studio so it's it's a little different, you know, it's a good question. There's a couple of good things. One, the fact that one person, Bill Appleberry, is mixing all the songs, that is a big advantage for me because one of the challenges of mastering is if you have a 10-song record and they use, you know, three different producers or four different mixers, there's a different kind of sound quality and instrument balance and frequency balance to the mixes when you get them, and you have to make them all sound cohesive, like they work together. So with Bill, that's good because I, I also keep notes, any good mastering engineer does they take notes of what they what they do with their equipment the settings of the you draw you know i have a, a method i use one of these little cards and see this it's like it's like a card that has a place for song title and then equalization settings and other little notes so with the voice i you know have a bunch of these now because i've done it's i've done like 10 seasons of the voice so I have a lot of these, uh, and when I go to master it, I'll kind of recall the, the latest season. There's two seasons a year. I'll recall the latest season even before Bill sends me anything, and then when he sends me stuff, I'll make measurements and I'll check that they're within specs of what he'd sent me before, and then I try to streamline, basically. I, I Knock on wood, I haven't had a problem, but that's... Uh, and also, as the season goes on, you get to... I may have certain settings for, say, like uh, one of the contestants, you know, I can't think of a name for some reason, but if one of the contestants, like, you know, a couple weeks in, like, I've got a certain setting that works good for their, their vocals and for their uh, stylistic, you know, some people are more country, some people are more rock, some people are more hip-hop. So, you know, I try to streamline by having, like, pretty meticulous notes. And then with The Voice and even with Capitol Records, how did you get to working in such highly ranked studios? Was it through connections mainly or did you have to work your way up through smaller businesses that were connected to each other? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So, you know, I think it, it for me, it was kind of like a little bit of a bit of a slow grind and it was kind of just, you know, working my way up. You know, like I said, I was I was uh, when I was finishing at, at MI and I was studying, you know, guitar. I started looking in the music connection and the first job I got at a studio was an internship. It was unpaid. Uh, it was only like once a week, but I really had no idea about anything about recording. I knew nothing. But, you know, the way it, it works, and I think this is still applicable, I was able to use the fact that I had that experience at that studio, even though it was really just like rolling up some cables and not really doing anything. 
uh, recording-wise, when I saw another uh, job posting for uh, Paramount Recording, which is a pretty well-known studio, and those guys have done well over the years in, in acquiring other studios, I, you know, I had on my resume that I had studio experience, and so when I interviewed there, you know, I was more in the know, and that was really only like four or six months later, not, you know, not a long time after I got the first job, but this job I was paid, you know, and I was working in the office of that studio, uh, because that was the position they had available, and I didn't really know how to be an engineer yet. So, but that allowed me a couple things. And that's another aha moment. I do remember specifically that one too, was that like when I first started working there, I was like, you know, answering the phone and giving tours of the studio and quoting rates and helping to book time and schedule. And, you know, at first I was like, oh man, like I you know, like I just was, I'm coming out of doing this like guitar program and I want to focus on that. I don't want to start a whole new kind of vocation really of recording. But I realized that that's what I wanted to do. I think one of the, one of the motivations for me is again, like there's some real practical motivations that are kind of important to pay attention to sometimes, you know, the engineers were like earning more money. Like they were making more money than like me in the office, right? Like I was having a minimum wage job at that time. It was like $4 an hour or something they were paying me. It was so low. And so, you know, I know the engineers were making like, you know, maybe $8 an hour, $10 an hour, which seems like nothing now, but back then it was not too bad. And so I was like, okay, let me learn some of these things. So maybe I can just, you know, apply that and, and earn more money. And, and, and also I can help with my bands and my projects. And so that's what I did. I said, okay, I'm going to try to learn this. And I, I remember getting a, a book at the time. There was a book by a uh, last name, Warham. It was called, I think it was called The Recording Studio Handbook or something. It was a 300, 400 pages. And I got that and I was reading that. And I was slowly trying to learn, like, the first thing you learn at that time was how to align a tape machine and then how to record a vocal. So, yeah, there's this progression. So, I, I was, first I was working for free, then I was working for a little bit. And then I, as I learned to record a vocal, that was like a, an accomplishment. I told those guys, the owners, I was like, look, you can put me on a vocal overdub session. I, you know, I've, I've done this a number of times now. I understand the, the, the approach and, and they did. And they put me on some sessions and then I started to learn recording guitars and keyboards and horns and bass and drums and all this stuff, which was also, uh, like I said, I kept looking for jobs actually. And I think that was an important point. Like even when I had the internship, I was looking for something a little better. Once I got in the office, I was trying to learn the recording, but I could tell that they maybe weren't confident in me yet. So that's when I found this guy who had a home studio. He had an added music connection as well. He needed someone to run his home studio. But at that point, I had two studios I had worked at, and I was still working at one. And, you know, that gave him confidence that he could hire me to um, mentor me further in recording engineering, which he did. And he, he used to work with Carol King, uh, who's a very famous songwriter. And so uh, I worked on a Carol King record and he kind of showed me like at that time, like how you command and run a recording session, you know, the confidence, how to punch people in. He showed me this stuff, which was really, really valuable. You know, I, I have a, a great uh, debt of gratitude to him. It was really like a mentor situation, but I was able to apply that to the bigger studio. Like Paramount had four 24-track studios then. His was more of a 16-track studio. And so when I decided to get into mastering, I had been doing recording now. It's been like five, five and a half years, a fair amount of time. And I had worked with some really named artists at that time. Some projects had done really well. And so when I called Mastering House, I'm like, look, I'm a recording engineer. You know, I work freelance and I, I was also still on staff at Paramount. I want to get into mastering. Is there some kind of position? I was able to, to have that. Capital, the manager at Capital Mastering said, yeah, drop off your resume. It just so happened that the owners at Paramount, who were my friends, were friends with this woman who worked here in New Media. New Media is what the Internet was. This is still like in 1995 or something. And so... I called her and I said, hey, I just dropped my resume off down at, in the mastering studios. Can you go give me a character reference? You know, she knew me well and we were friends and she knew that I was you know, a hard worker. And she went down and she's just like, you got to hire this guy. He's great. You know, he's a great worker. And it went on the top of the pile of resumes. And then, and then I went through a couple of interviews. You know, it's a pretty corporate environment, Capital. You know, this is a, a record label and this is a studio. But it's unusual in that it's, it's a corporate environment. Like, so I had to interview with an immediate manager, the head of tech, the head of the department, and then HR. I had four interviews to get hired at Capital. And I think, you know, the, the HR one was maybe more of a just a formality. But I had to kind of at least impress 
or let those people understand that I was down for this job. I was willing to do it, you know, and it was kind of an entry-level mastering job. You know, I even had one of the, uh, at the time, the head of the department, he, one of his questions to me was, actually, I'll never forget, there's two questions. I might as well go over them. That One was, the chief tech guy asked me, he's like, where do you see yourself in five years? This is a common interview question, but it's actually a pretty good one. So I just told him, you know, and I, I said, I just see myself working with uh, established clients mastering albums, you know. That was good that I was able to answer that. But the other thing that another guy said, because he's looking at my resume and he'd seen that I'd worked with like the cult and Steve Vai and Carol King and these people. And he's like, well, what are you going to do if, if Steve Vai calls you and says he wants you to, to do like an overdub session? With him? And, I, and I just was like, you know, I'm just going to explain that, I, that I'm making a shift in, in my career to mastering and that, you know, I may be available sometimes on the weekends or whatever, but that, I'm, you know, I've kind of have a commitment in the, in the mastering department at Capitol. And so, you know, I had these answers that, you know, calmed these people's concerns. So to answer your question, yeah, what goes through all of this and it's important for anyone to remember, uh, it applies for music and recording, it applies for maybe anything you're doing. You have to think about two things. One is what your offering is, like what your skill set is, you know, how professional are you, how good are you? And the second thing is your advocacy, like who knows you, who can vouch for you, who do you work with, who, who will, you know, it's kind of like a personal reference type of a scenario, but those two things always have to be kind of evolving and improving. And it's a good way to assess yourself. Like if you're like, hey, I didn't get that job or that thing fell through, you can ask yourself like, okay, so is it what I offered? Is like my mix wasn't good or my recording wasn't good? Um, did I show up late when they started partying? Did I party with them instead of being professional? And the other thing you can say is like, well, what's my advocacy like? You know, it's like you have to find a way. And I've been fortunate in this regard, like L.A. is a music city. So there's well-known musical artists here. And if you work in a studio that has access to them, you're going to be associated with those artists. So, you know, someone at home could be have a great setup uh, for mastering and they could have good ears and do a good quality project but if they're not in kind of the stream of the work like they're not going to get access to a gig like the voice like when the voice came around here i did have to shoot out with some of my coworkers, and they're all great but they did like what i was doing and and i was able to relate to the engineer who was mixing when he came through and these things are important and it's like tricky because it's very competitive so mastering is very competitive a recording is very competitive and you can see this when you're working with people and it's okay but, you know, you got to find that balance between, you know, just being professional and, and, and decent, but going the extra mile. And would you say that living in an area centered around music LA is would be a very big contributing factor to working in the music industry? Because I know that it's possible to have a career in music everywhere. But I feel like a lot of people I know think of it as... Like, L.A. is such a popular place for movies and music and everything. Like, that's where they need to be in order to make that happen. Would you agree with that? I know what you're saying. And I don't know if it's cut and dry and if it works this way in every scenario. But I can just tell you, for me, like, if I look at back, if I look at my, like, CV or resume and I look at the artists I've worked with, there's just no way. There's no way I would have been able to work with all those artists with at that caliber if I wasn't in L.A. There's just no way. I mean, you know, when I was at Paramount, they were attracting a certain, they attracted some rock and rock bands, but, you know, like they're known as a pretty big hip hop studio. So I worked with like Tupac and Tone Loke and, you know, like I said, The Cult and Steve Vai and Montel Jordan and these people that at the time were having hits, you know, who were highly regarded in those genres. I'm not sure if I was in Kansas, I would have that opportunity, you know. And so that's something to consider. But it's not to say, like, you know, there are scenes that pop up, like, you know, the grunge scene came out of Seattle. Or if you go to Austin, Texas, there's some kind of singer-songwriter or country scene. And you could be like, like a go-to person in that scene. Or even, you know, I mean, the big cities are, are Nashville, L.A. and New York, you know, maybe Seattle to some extent. But it is important, but I got to say, you know, it's hard. You know, L.A. is an expensive town, but I mean, it's a great town. It's one of the great towns in the world, great cities in the world. But, you know, you got more people, and this is something I was always aware of. You have, there's more studios and more people doing, like the information pool, shall I say, or the talent pool for people doing recording is huge. And that helped because you're like going with this flow. So that was important. And so I, to answer your question, I do think it's important. If you want to try to get credits that are like household names or people that are maybe influential in the industry, it does make sense to be in a place like L.A. It doesn't guarantee it. 
Uh, you know, nothing's guaranteed. You know, you got to be you got to be really determined and hardworking as well. You got to know how to get along with people, and you got to know how to maybe make some adjustments or changes as as time goes on. But you could be I don't want to say small fish in a big pond. But you could establish yourself anywhere, especially with the internet. My advice is even if you, you wanted to do that, try to spend some time in, in one of the music cities, in one of the, the music environments like a studio or a label or bands or people who are established in the community a little bit. You know, it's tricky. But if you show up and you start making efforts, usually a window or a door starts to open. And you've mentioned a few different streaming services like YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. Um, since you've started working in music, how has that, like different streaming services and audio technologies changed over the years since you've started mastering? And I guess, how has that affected the way that you have mastered over the years? So when I first got into mastering, it was really uh, primarily CD and vinyl. We do have two vinyl latest here. I just you know, I've always been busy doing the other formats, so so I, I haven't done vinyl yet. Maybe one day I'll, I'll get into that. But yeah, mastering for CD is a little different because at the end of the mastering session, you create a CD master, and you could be on a CD. It could be as something called a DDP file, which is Disk Description Protocol file, which is like a folder that has the audio and it has a checksum and it has. Uh, some indexing information, etc. And so that's another way. So you would make a CD, or you could also do, when I first started, it was 1630 Masters, which is a big, looks like a big VHS cassette. It's like a three-quarter inch digital video cassette. And that's how actually a lot of the Masters were when I started. And that was my first job working in here at Capitol, was making copies of those. They were called clones. And then they would get sent out to all the different territories. Now everything is just emailed. So, so that's different because you would make that master. At the end, you would compile it and it would go onto this master. And that master would get QC. You'd have to QC, quality control, off of the actual master. That was the criteria because what if there's a defect in the, in the actual physical CD or if there's a, a problem with the tape? So you had to make sure that that specific one was good before it was shipped. So there's that. Uh, I think there is this thing called the loudness wars. Uh, you may or may not have heard of it. It's just the idea that everyone wants their music louder, or a lot of people do. It comes from uh, record labels thinking that if you had a louder you know, 45 back in the 60s and 70s going to radio, it would help it perform better at being broadcast over the airwaves, and it would help it become a hit. So... There is this uh, there is this trend, so I can say that when I started, like you know, CDs I'd be mastering were, you know, two or three decibels quieter overall, which is like the the average level I'd make stuff. But there's some people who want stuff really loud, or some styles of music like EDM or hip hop. You know, a lot of times people want like a really loud master. So that's something that that did shift and change. In fact, when I first started working in mastering, we didn't have what's called a peak limiter. And a peak limiter is this device, uh, it's now mostly in plugins like the FabFilter Pro-L or uh, the Ele Boxango Elephant or the UAD Precision Limiter. It just allows, it just allows you to set a threshold over which no volume will pass and it allows you to increase volume into it and make louder and louder masters. Of course, at some point, it doesn't sound good or it starts to distort, distort so you have to be careful. Uh, that's another thing. So there's a kind of an increase in level. Uh, there are backlashes to this. Some people say, you know, I just want a really dynamic master and not too loud. And so with streaming, you know, Spotify has a specific spec. Uh, it's an LUFS spec, which is a loudness unit full scale. It's a kind of a, a digital full scale reference, RMS, average level reference. And so if someone wants a Spotify master, I, theirs is minus 14 LUFS, which is not that loud. It's probably three or four dB quieter than a normal CD would be, um, but I'll make that. Uh, the master for iTunes file, again, these are things that just didn't exist before the streaming platforms. You know, master for iTunes is just, they have their own codec, which you can run your audio through, and it'll tell you if you have clipped samples, which is usually a result of peak limiting. It's usually a result of something being a little too hot. You have to either DS uh, cymbals or vocals or lower the level a bit to get it to pass. You know, I kind of prefer, I've got a couple of really transparent DSers and I'll do that. For instance, on The Voice, they have to have these Master Fry Tunes files at the end of the night or the day. And I usually do it with a 
a DS or because I can do it faster. There's times I've done it where I just like, if it's just one section of the song that's not passing, you'll edit it down and you can do it that way. It just, it can take a long time. So I just, again, figured out primarily from working on the voice that if I use a, a good DS or I can get it to pass the first time and I can save time. So there's that. And I know that like YouTube has a recommendation for their level. SoundCloud has, I believe, a recommendation. But, you know, the standard digital is the, is the main one, is the main one I use, uh, which is uh, just the 16441 wave. It's called the Redbook Standard uh, Resolution for Digital Audio. So, yeah, so that's kind of how it's changed, you know. And speaking of equipment, for all the people out there that really enjoy that kind of stuff, do you have a favorite piece of equipment that you work with? Yeah, so I got a, I got a number uh, of things that I do like. And I, I will say this, but I, I recently published a book. It's called Major Label Mastering, and it's out on Rutledge. It's on Amazon. And I do go through, I, I talk about the first time I saw the Capitol Records building when I was in high school, and I talk about how 10 years later I worked there. And um, I just go through some of the things I discussed about uh, uh, how I kind of got into the into the into the business and the work. But then I quickly get into the process of mastering and a step by step process of approaching it. But I do also highlight some equipment that I use. And so, yeah, basically in mastering, and I talk about this in the book as well. It's uh, I refer to the primary colors of mastering. It's 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 red, yellow, and blue. So if you're if you're like an art uh, like an artist or a painter, you start by learning about these color palettes. But the primary colors are colors from which you can extract a lot of other colors and so they're like this fundamental concept of of color and painting but in mastering there's really three main pieces of equipment it's like it's a compressor a limiter and equalizer really like there are other things like deessers and multi-bands and there's other things but if you want to learn to be a really good mastering engineer, uh, I recommend you start with those three and you spend time, like even years, working on your projects with just those three and understanding and getting good with them. So within that category, so as far as EQs, you know, there's a famous EQ, a passive EQ called the Pultec that was built by Eugene Shank in the 1950s, and it has a really nice, warm sound and it has a really interesting equalization curve if you plot its curves so that's one of my favorite eqs is a pultec there are companies subsequently like manly who made uh, mastering versions of this and a mastering version just means that it has what's called stepped attenuators and so the right and left channels click and there's a specific resistor that's actually soldered into each click so you don't get what's called an image shift you don't get the left channel getting a little more EQ or the right one or little problems if it's like a lot of equalizers I'm talking about hardware now like you just sp- turn the knob and it's like a, a wiper um, and so you could be like just a little off right and so like I have them uh, I own a pair of manly Poltex that I use a lot in mastering also there's the, something called a Sontec which is a really famous parametric equalizer you know these are all pictured in my book but I'm starting by talking about analog pieces of equipment um, and then as far as a compressor you know there's some famous compressors from the beginning of uh, recording and some of them have again evolved into some pretty prominent mastering uh, compressors I do like the the Fairchild is, is one of the famous ones again from the 50s that was then co opted by Manly makes something called a Verimu, which is a bit of a copy of it, you know, and so it's a type of compressor that has a certain transformery warm quality to it. Uh, so I do like Fairchild's and any derivative of Fairchild's. There's a number of them, like the Shadow Hills Mastering Compressor. And as far as limiters, there's the famous Waves L2, which is hardware, which is fine. And then there's the TC M6000, which has a number of functions, but it does do a really good brick wall limiting. And if I had to say a plug-in EQ, my favorite one is the DMG Equilibrium. I think it is just remarkable because it does model all of these on the EQ side. It models all the famous recording consoles and mastering equalizers like the Sontac, but it does it all digitally, uh, phase linear. And so if I had a Desert Island plug-in EQ, it would definitely be the DMG Equilibrium. I can say that I use it every single day. I can say that I probably use it on every single project. And as far as a plug-in compressor, uh, UAD has a good Fairchild clone, which is great. There's the FabFilter Pro-C. It's a good compressor. And other plug-in limiters are obviously the FabFilter Pro-L and the Voxango Elephant and the UAD Precision Limiter. So I I probably listed like maybe 10, 12 things there, but those are all my favorite. I use all of them. They all have like a really, they're, they're really great tools. You know, you can get really great results using them. 
And for someone who's interested in starting out in producing, recording, mastering, what would you recommend as like a starter piece of equipment for them? Hmm, that's a good question. So, gosh, you know, if you wanted to kind of, someone who's maybe doing like wearing a lot of hats, clearly you would need a digital audio workstation. So the first thing you need is a computer uh, with Pro Tools on it. That's my advice. I know some people use like, like Cakewalk or Nuendo or they use um, Cubase. I, I think, you know, you're better off just getting Pro Tools because like a lot of major studios use it and it's set up to function just like a analog console. So if you understand Pro Tools, you could learn on a large format analog console. If you learn on an analog console or, or learn that first, Pro Tools is going to make sense to you. So you would need Pro Tools because you can do mastering in Pro Tools too. And you can do your songwriting, your production work in there as well. So you'd probably need that. You would need at least some headphones. You would need an I.O., you know, for your computer, an I.O. system, like could be a Lynx card or something that would convert uh, from digital to analog. Or there's an Apogee device. I can't remember its name, but there's a number of these things. There's obviously just the, uh, the Pro Tools uh, interface as well that would let you, you know, come out analog to hear what you're doing and to, and to go in with uh, microphones and things that you're recording. Uh, so you would need that set up. And then, you know, it depends on what you're creating. I mean, I'm, I'm actually not that versed in like if people are doing uh, their programming drums, I'm sure there's a lot of plugins and, and, and everything's digital now. So there's a lot of types of options like that for you to program your drums and even program your, your, your bass probably. And then you could record guitars and vocals and things like that. If you're doing the production aspect of things, obviously you would need your IO usually has a mic preamplifier on it, but you would need to get a microphone to do vocals and record uh, guitars and things. You know, the basic stuff is you need some dynamic mics for guitars and drums and uh, maybe a large diaphragm condenser for vocals. You know, you can get away with just one or two mics to start. And, uh, you know, you'd have to set up, uh, you know, some area of your apartment or house that could be fairly, you know, isolated sound-wise. But the, the, that would be like the basic stuff. It was going to be mastering. You would start in that scenario. You would start with plugins. And I would just recommend you get some UAD mastering plugins and just use those. Because if you just have one of their EQs or you got the DMG equilibrium, all you need are three, like I said, primary colors. So you get the limiter, the UAD precision limiter. You can use the UAD Fairchild or there's a number of other Fairchild plugins. And then the DMG equilibrium. Like with those three, you could get a really good result mastering and it's not that expensive and those are are just fantastic fantastic plugins i'd like to go back you had previously mentioned that you were in a band how does being on the performing side of music differ from being on the mastering side of music it's totally different yeah it's totally different i mean it's great to you know they inform each other in records and so i i'm not as active in these in these last couple years but i have a little indie label called spill records which is my record label and i put out like four full-length records and i used to book indie tours for like sometimes a long weekend, sometimes two, two, three weeks at a time. Uh, and I used to, I was really involved in this kind of like indie rock ethos. I never quit my job. I was worried and I would take like vacation time or other things to do it. It's different because as an artist, it's fully creative. I mean, whereas mastering is an intersection of some science and technology know-how and your creative sensibilities and your creative sensibilities, don't get me wrong, are really important. That's what separates you from another mastering engineer. Uh, you, you know, you may get similar results with different mastering engineers, but at the end of the day, what you're paying for is, you know, that engineer's uh, creative sensibilities, their, uh, their ability to quickly understand and grasp what you're doing stylistically, uh, their sensitivity to what's in your music, like dynamically, like verse sections should be quieter, or if it's like a sadder song or a more hype, up-tempo song, all these things figure into your assessment and how you're going to approach it. Um, when, when you're an artist, it's just full on like, what you know, what, what have you created? Is it your song? Or if it's your band and you guys have a certain kind of a genre and vibe, you want to be able to, to bring that impact. And, and if you're a singer, you have to be able to perform uh, or if you're a guitarist, whatever your instrument is, you have to be able to sort of execute and perform that in a live setting and, and try, to, try to connect with people actually on a really visceral level, which is fantastic. I mean, it's a blast. It's amazing. So they're different, you know. At every phase of my recording or mastering career, I was doing those things with my band or my bands. You know, when I was uh, learning recording, I'd be recording my bands. When I started learning about mastering, I'd start like, mastering my bands, you know. So... Uh, involve some challenges when you're working on your own material because you may lose some perspective, but you also you know know what you're after, and sometimes you can get a really good 
result that you're pleased with. You know, it's a lot, it's a lot of work, but they're both rewarding. I mean, ultimately playing and, and performing and music you've written and the people are relating to is it's really a peak experience. You know, it's something that is really, really wonderful. And I, I would, if, if people are inclined or they have a certain skill or talent, I would encourage them to try to develop it because it's important. And since learning about mastering, do you think that it's made you pickier about your own personal music that you've put out? Well, I, I have learned more, and that's, you know, I, I understand more about listening experience. And, and uh, you know, like when I was first recording with my bands, we wouldn't even master at all. We would just put it out on a cassette or whatever, you know, it would just go out. So, yeah, I don't know if it's made me more picky. The, the time I've spent, you know, recording and producing uh, and mastering, has made it so, for better or worse, I can have a inf really informed opinion on what I'm listening to. And it doesn't mean it resonates with anybody else, but it may mean that it does actually resonate with other people. It may mean that I'm able to help someone actualize a result that they didn't know they could. So yeah, in a way it has made me pick here. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's, it's a blessing and a curse because if you spend time in a recording studio, you see like the exploded version of like an engine, you know, and you're like, oh, look at that little bark plug. And if people at the end of the day don't listen to music that way, you know, it, it still ends up being kind of a stereo left-right experience. And so that's important to remember because performances that you capture are compelling to listen to. But if you're in there nudging every little thing, sometimes it's like, gets perfect sounding, but it doesn't have any uh, vitality to it. And vitality is important. And you're kind of a jack of all trades. You've done producing, mastering, and been on the performance side. You've also won a Grammy for Best Native American Music Album, Gathering of Nations Pow Wow, A Spirit's Dance. What would you say your feeling was when you heard the news that you had won the Grammy? Oh, well, it was it was uh, exaltation and, and, and jubilation. I mean, we were I was at, at Staples Center. We were at the awards. It was in the pre-recorded time, so it wasn't on the broadcast part earlier in the day. So, but I was at Staples Center with the with the label owners, and that was awesome. You know, I didn't really expect it. Uh, this was a, a client that was referred to me, and we had done a previous year. Um, it's a it's a unique project because it does have to do with traditional Native American music uh, that's performed live and then rec recorded live, and then I actually mix and master it simultaneously, which you can do, which is an interesting thing, actually. And I, you know, they, they told me the second year I worked with them that they were nominated, and I kind of sent out my feelers, because, you know, if you know anything about how the Grammys work, there's voting members, and I, th I, th I think now they changed it. It used to be you, if you worked on, like, five commercially released records, you could be a voting member, but now you actually have to be referred by someone who's already a voting member. I think for, you know, you can be an associate member. You just, I think you just sign up. So yeah, I sent my feelers out and they sent their feelers out and we were, you know, we were in the top five and then we went, you don't know. So we went to Staples Center in a Hummer limo. It was really, you know, classic cheese ball, you know, awards ceremony stuff. It won. Yeah. So, so it was thrilling. It was thrilling. I didn't expect it. It's, it's a remarkable thing. And, and, you know, I feel very fortunate, you know, here, just to show you, watch. It's uh, it's something you don't expect. I imagine that'd be such a surreal moment winning a Grammy because not a lot of people are able to make it to that point, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And again, like I didn't expect it, but you know, um, I'm pr pretty hard, hard worker, consistent worker. I mean, I've got a lot of stick to itiveness, and it just, it just sort of came my way. And so, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like really fortunate, and I would love to you know, maybe uh, get another one at some point. We'll see how it goes. I mean, it's really, I don't want to say it's all luck, but it's its a combination of those things. Like, you know, it's just being in the right stream, getting involved in the right project and, you know, timing and all these things. And so, you know, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was just a complete jubilation. And it's always nice to see that your hard work really does pay off in the end. Not that if you don't win a Grammy that you're not working well, but that really shows that, you're making something meaningful. Yeah, yeah, no, great, yeah, very articulate. And then for that album, and I guess all albums that you've worked on, how do you know when the final product is completely finished? Um, you know, well, that's a good question. I mean, I think when you're first doing, uh, like, mastering, it's more things like, hey, you, you know, you, your, your co-workers or people are going to say, like, look, it has to be about this level, and you have certain meters that you can check. And it's really as simple as, like, leveling things. Like, if you had to do the simplest explanation of mastering. It's just like, make sure the volume is this loud 
and it's consistent between the tracks. Like that's actually, it sounds so simple. It's a big part of mastering in a way. But then obviously you get into a lot of these nuances, like um, like preserving the, the, the dynamic range, uh, you know, making sure the, the, the quiet parts are quiet, the loud parts are loud, um, making sure it's a good listening experience. I mean, that's what I write about in, you know, in my book a lot is, is this concept of listening experience. So you know it's done when actually I think you feel like, hey, I understand it. I understand its genre. I understand what this artist is trying to do. And I think I've not I've enhanced that, but not gotten in the way of it. Like you're not reinventing the wheel. You just want it to be able to present as well as it can present on all formats once it's out in the world, uh, you know, streaming or if it's on a CD or vinyl or whatever, whatever it may be. And uh, so you just, I think, I think, you know, like for me, I feel like I know when I feel like it's got the right level and impact, like on the, on the loud portions that it still, you know, flows and it, and it kind of lets you forget where you are. You know, you're kind of, uh, you, you get taken away by the emotions and, and the, uh, the beauty of the music really. So that, that, that's the criteria. So you're working with The Voice and at Capitol Records. Are there any other projects that you're currently working on? Um, yeah, there's a lot. There's a guy named Lionel Cole. And I'm doing, uh, you know, uh, uh, three records for him. And he actually is Nat King Cole's, Nat King Cole was his great uncle, I think. And so his name's Lionel Cole. He lives in Australia now. But he used to work with Mariah Carey as like a, a music director and a keyboardist and stuff. And so he's got a really great, like that style. He does that kind of a little bit of an old school, like pop jazz a trio or quartet where you know he's singing it's, and it's really it's really great. So I'm working working with him. I work with a number of number of singer songwriters who put out singles or EPs. You know, uh, a lot of people that might be playing. There's a club here called Hotel Cafe. A lot of people that come through there when it's not COVID. You know, there, there's that. And uh, let's see what else we got. There's a singer songwriter named Lakota I'm working on right now, and a, a number of projects from Turkey. Like I do have connections with the Turkish music industry because my Heritage is Turkish, so I, I've been there, I go there, and um, people contact me from there. And so I'm doing some, some actually some Turkish hip-hop, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, so those are the things that are, that are cooking right now. That is always really pretty good, even if it's like indie uh, people. There's never really a huge problem. You know, I, I, like, I like being surprised. Like I was, uh, I just did a song last week. Uh, I, I can't even remember the artist name, but the song's called Amber. And it's this, this friend of mine, Jason Mater, who's a great mixer, producer. And I was just like, you know, he always does a really good job. It was like a female vocal and the song. And I was just like, man, this is so good. It just, just like breaks the space-time continuum. So when you start listening to the song, you're like just wrapped into the, you know, the timbre of the vocals and the message of the vocals and the impact of the instruments. And it's just like a really, really ideal listening experience. I, I guess I like working on more stuff like that. It'd be great to work on um, maybe some some other bigger artists. You know, I've worked with a lot of bigger artists, but like, you know, other bigger artists would be cool to to, to, to have the chance to work on. I was fortunate enough last spring, I worked on a, um, a Nick Jonas single. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, because he well, it came through The Voice because he was a judge on The Voice. And then so he had another single, like it just turned out that he needed uh, that. Oh, that he was going to premiere on the show, but it was just his. It wasn't part of the contest. So they just were like, look, can you do this Nick Jonas thing? I'm like, of course. Yeah. You know, his producer in Nashville was talking to me. And I remember I, this is another tricky thing that happens in mastering. I might as well say. So they sent the song over and it, I was like, it already sounds like just done. I'm going like, what can I do to this? Like, it was really good. And it was already pretty hot. And then, you know, I spoke to his producer. He's like, he's like, we like a lot of compression. We like it really loud. So I just kind of, you know, pushed it and, you know, they ended up liking it and, and using it. But, you know, so, so stuff like that's, I would look forward to doing more things like that. You know, maybe knowing people would be wonderful to win another Grammy. It's possible if it's in the cards, you know, it'd be great. But, you know, I, I feel fortunate, you know, the phone still, still rings, the phone rings and I, you know, I'd like to, to keep it ringing, I guess, you know. And would you ever consider venturing out of mastering and going into another field, music or not? And if so, what type of field would you like to work in? Um, it's a good question. I mean, it's like a really good question. I'm almost amazed that I've worked in audio this long. I remember there's times I'm going like, is this going to like stop? You know? So if I did something else, it would be great to just do more, maybe, uh, like writing and performance, you know, like more cre fully creative, like, or possibly producing. But to be honest with you, I just really like, I, I enjoy most like 
like writing and creating my own songs and performing them and, and recording them. I do really enjoy that. Um, I'd like to maybe have time or space to do more of that. You know, I did write this book and I have taught mastering at like Cal Poly Pomona. I did uh, teach their mastering class a number of times. I might do that again. Um, if for some reason, like something happened to Capitol, I would probably just have, you know, uh, my personal studio and, you know, maybe I, I would teach. It's, it's, it is rewarding to, to teach, you know, something that, that you, you have uh, expertise in. You know, uh, I, I do, it feels like giving back a little bit. And um, I do like to, to, to do that, you know. So maybe I would do get involved in, in teaching or do, you know, some, some digital platforms. Like I'd video some, some classes or a, like a course or a workshop. So those are the things I might do if I was not specifically doing mastering. All right. I think that's about all the time we have. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Of course. Thank you so much, Ashley. And your book, Major Label Mastering, Professional Mastering Process, is available on all platforms, correct? Yeah.